This is episode 161 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Taylorism, What It Means Today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I was reading some criticisms of capitalism the other day, and came across this accusation that all of our troubles with capitalism come from Taylorism. And at first I thought, what the heck are they talking about? What's, what's Taylorism? And I gradually figured out they were talking about Frederick Winslow Taylor, who's the father of so-called scientific management. And then when I looked him up, I remembered Oh, yeah, this is the stopwatch guy. That's how I remember him as doing uh, all these studies of work and productivity, measuring people's output. And then also there's this story about Schmidt, and uh, we'll get to that. So I wanted to look at this and see if this really is Taylor, the source of all of our problems in our current workplaces. It'd be great to know that one person is to blame. Uh, The first thing to notice about Taylor is that he is old. Uh, So if his influence is still that strong, I have to ask myself, isn't that our fault for not moving on to some other principles and some other ideals? His book, uh, The Principles of Scientific Management, which he published in 1911, was uh, declared the most influential management book of the 20th century by the Fellows of the Academy of Management. And they made that declaration in 2001. So that's interesting to me that although he published it in 1911, uh, really, we didn't come up with anything more influential in the next uh, 90 years. So that's kind of interesting. Peter Drucker, who is the American management consultant, and some people call him the founder of modern management, wrote uh, in 1993, Darwin, Marx, and Freud make up the trinity often cited as the makers of the modern world. Marx would be taken out and replaced by Taylor if there was any justice. For hundreds of years, there had been no increase in the ability of workers to turn out goods or to move goods, which I just have to editorialize here separately. Really? During hundreds of years, there was no increase? Okay. Uh, So Drucker goes on to say, when Taylor started propounding his principles, nine out of every 10 working people did manual work, making or moving things, whether in manufacturing, farming, mining, or transportation. And then he says, by 2010, it will constitute no more than one-tenth. Right. So during that century, we've moved extremely away from manual labor. So I guess I would question, like, didn't that have something to do with Henry Ford and automation? But okay, that's what Peter Drucker thinks. 
Let's take a look at Taylor's background. He was born in 1856 and died in 1915. He was a mechanical engineer, and really his claim to fame is to uh, work on industrial efficiency. He was born to a Quaker family in Philadelphia. His father was a Princeton-educated lawyer, and his mother was an ardent abolitionist. And they were an old, wealthy family whose ancestors went back uh, to the Mayflower pilgrims. Taylor studied in Europe and uh, traveled in Europe uh, for a few years. And then in 1872, he entered the Phillips Exeter Academy with the plan eventually of going to Harvard and becoming a lawyer like his father. And he did pass their entrance exams, but he decided to go in a different path and became an apprentice pattern maker and machinist working at Enterprise Hydraulic Works in Philadelphia. He finished a four-year apprenticeship and then became a machine shop laborer at Midvale Steelworks, where he uh, started to cut his teeth, so to speak, in the steelworks. And at Midvale, he was promoted to time clerk, journeyman machinist, gang boss, a machine shop foreman, research director, and finally chief engineer. And his fast promotions uh, during those 12 years reflect both his talent, but also his family's relationship with an owner of Midvale Steel. While he worked there, here's an interesting aside, he uh, won the first tennis doubles tournament in the 1881 U.S. National Championships, which was kind of a precursor to the U.S. Open. Uh, so he was a, a, a very good tennis player. And then uh, flashing forward in the 1900 Summer Olympics, he finished fourth in golf. So a kind of a, a rich man's sports there, tennis and golf, but a very good athlete. While he was at Midvale, he recognized that workmen were uh, working on their machines or on themselves and perhaps not working as hard as they could, a activity that was then called soldiering. Uh, it's interesting we don't use that word very much anymore, but it meant uh, kind of slacking off on the job. You were called uh, soldiering if you did that. And so what Taylor recognized is that when men did that and didn't work as hard as they possibly could, it resulted in higher labor costs. And so he decided to demand more as a foreman. And so he began to study how much work uh, these men and their machines could do. And basically what he was looking at was productivity, although that word wasn't being used at that time. He switched jobs and worked from 1890 to 1893 as a general manager and consultant engineer uh, to the Manufacturing Investment Company of Philadelphia, which is a company that owned large paper mills. And he was also a plant manager for a while in Maine. And then in 1893, he opened up his own independent consulting practice back in Philadelphia. Through those experiences, he perfected this management system that uh, he was very proud of and that still has uh, ramifications today. And he presented a paper to the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. His first paper was called A Peace Rate System in 1895. In 1898, he joined Bethlehem Steel to solve, in theory, a capacity problem 
And after two years, he was forced to leave there after a discord with other managers. And I wonder if once you've worked as a management consultant, if you can't work for anybody else anymore and you just expect your word to be the word of God. But anyway, separately and and kind of strangely, while he was at Bethlehem, he discovered uh, one of his best-known and most profitable patents. Uh, They created a cutting steel technique that doubled or quadrupled cutting speeds, he got a very large payment for that patent. And so as a result, not having to really work anymore, he focused the remainder of his career on promoting his management methods uh, through lecturing, writing, and consulting. Those methodologies became very famous worldwide, And eventually, in 1911, he introduced his paper, The Principles of Scientific Management. Eight years after his first paper, uh, he introduced this this to the ASME. And then in year 1915, he caught pneumonia and died uh, just after his 59th birthday. I want to take a closer look at that 1911 date, which was the publication for the principles of scientific management that's, you know, still very famous today. It's interesting to me to wonder whether or not something else hadn't happened if that paper would still be so famous. So in 1910, Louis Brandeis coined the term scientific management. He was to be a future U.S. Supreme Court justice, but at that time he was arguing a case uh, before the Interstate Commerce Commission, and he argued that railroads, if they were governed according to Taylor's principles, didn't need to raise their rates in order to increase wages. And so this term, scientific management, was splattered across headlines all across the country, and Taylor then adopted that term for his uh, paper, The Principles of Scientific Management, that he published the next year. And as we'll hear later, he actually had to kind of rush to get that paper out in order to capitalize on this uh, famous case that had been argued by Brandeis. In fact, Taylor wrote to Brandeis and said, I have rarely seen a new movement started with such great momentum as you have given this one. So you might say he got a little bit lucky on that one. To go back to Peter Drucker, he wrote, uh, Frederick W. Taylor was the first man in recorded history who deemed work deserving of systematic observation and study. On Taylor's scientific management rests, above all, the tremendous surge of affluence in the last 75 years, which has lifted the working masses in the developed countries well above any level recorded before, even for the well-to-do. Taylor, though the Isaac Newton or perhaps the Archimedes of the science of work laid only first foundations, however, not much has been added to them since, even though he has been dead all of 60 years. So this is a theme here in this podcast about, okay, what have we been doing since Taylor died, if that's the case? I want to look first at what he did, and I'm going to be very charitable in my presentation here, at least in the beginning. Taylor had four principles. He wanted to replace rule-of-thumb work methods with methods that were based on this scientific study. 
He wanted to scientifically select, train, and develop each employee, and then he wanted to give them instructions and supervision for each of their discrete tasks, and he wanted to divide work between managers and workers so that the managers would work on management and planning the work, and the workers would actually do the manual part of the tasks. I'm also relying on a paper here by Vincenzo Sandrone, who was at the University of Technology in Sydney and who did quite an interesting paper about Taylor. And he would reword those principles in this way, that Taylor wanted a development of a true science. He wanted scientific selection of the workmen. And he wanted scientific education and development of the workmen. And he wanted what uh, Sandrone here calls intimate and friendly cooperation between the management and the men. Something for us to keep in mind as this uh, information progresses. It's worth remembering Taylor's day that many of the laborers were uneducated people and often recent immigrants who were not literate and did not have Uh, a lot of English. Taylor believed that laborers and low-level supervisors weren't qualified to plan how work should be done or give instruction about how work should be done. So Taylor created planning departments and staffed them with engineers, surprise, surprise, who would have guessed, and then gave them the responsibility for developing the methods for doing the work, establishing goals, establishing reward systems, and to be responsible for training. He recognized that a huge cultural shift would be needed and wrote, quote, the really great problem consists of the complete revolution in the mental attitude and the habits of all those engaged in the management, as well of the workmen. And he also placed the responsibility for determining the best way to do something on management. And he felt that there was one and only one method of work that maximized efficiency, and that that one should be discovered or developed through scientific study and analysis. Uh, It requires careful investigation of all of the many modifications and attempts that have been developed under the rules of thumb. You should take the best points of those and unify them into a single standard implementation that then will be imposed on every workman so that he can work faster and with greater ease, and that that should be adopted as the standard and remain the standard until something else better comes along. Which was interesting, just the phrasing here, the way he said that. It did sound a bit like continuous improvement, didn't it? Anyway, setting that aside, what could possibly go wrong? And I would say some of the backlash against Taylorism, uh, which some people say is actually now used only in a pejorative sense, was really a problem with presentation. And Taylor liked to present his ideas in the form of parables or, or little stories. And so that brings us to Schmidt, um, which is where things get to be a little difficult. So Taylor would argue that, you know, a person needs to be selected to be appropriate for every task. And so then he has this unfortunate paragraph. 
One of the very first requirements for a man who is fit to handle pig iron as a regular occupation is that he shall be so stupid and so phlegmatic that he more nearly resembles in his mental makeup the ox than any other type. The man who is mentally alert and intelligent is for this very reason entirely unsuited to what would, for him, be the grinding monotony of the work of this character. Sandroni writes that Taylor's attitudes towards workers was laden with negative bias, but because he believed that in the majority of cases, the workers deliberately planned to do as little as they possibly could. And so the methods that Taylor adopted were directed at people like that. In the case of Schmidt, according to Taylor's story, he has this long conversation about whether or not Schmidt is a, quote, high-priced man, meaning that he's interested in earning more money. And he tells him then how to become a high-priced man, and this is what he tells them, at least according to Taylor's story. Well, if you are a high-priced man, you will do exactly as this man tells you tomorrow from morning till night. When he tells you to pick up a pig and walk, you pick it up and you walk. And when he tells you to sit down and rest, you sit down. You do that right straight through the day. And what's more, no back talk. Now, a high-priced man does just what he's told to do and no back talk. And Taylor admits in his writing, this seems rather rough talk. And indeed, it would be if applied to an educated mechanic or even an intelligent laborer. He claimed that this effort that he undertook with Schmidt resulted in the work rate of Schmidt going from uh, 12.5 tons per day to 47.5 tons, which showed the worth of scientific management and the scientific method, and also that Schmidt went from earning $1.15 a day to $1.85. Well, one of the many problems with this story, besides it being extremely insulting to a real worker, uh, whose name, it turns out, is Henry Knoll, it's probably not true. It's been labeled a pigtail. It's become more obvious over time that Taylor was good at honing his stories and exaggerating his results for better headlines and sound bites. Who could have predicted that for a management consultant? Surprising to me is that people still argue about this. And in fact, there are still studies going on to determine if the uh, productivity improvement for Schmidt was possible or not. And I have to ask you, why do we even care about something so irrelevant today? And let's talk a little bit more about what Taylor knew and didn't know. He spent a lot of time in his books describing this soldiering, the act of loafing, both at the individual level and also what he called systemic soldiering. So Sandroni says that People were doing this deliberately because there was a belief that increased output would lead to fewer workers. And I think we sometimes see some of that in the modern age as well. Taylor also believed that these inefficiencies were due to poorly designed incentive schemes and hourly pay rates not linked to productivity. Again, we have uh, echoes of that today and also a poor design of the performance of work. Taylor thought that you could break through that 
with money, monetary incentives, and that you could also break down this kind of prevailing distinction between us versus them, between the workforce and the employers. And so he tried to find common ground between the working and managing classes. And so he put forward some ideas about sharing the gains with the workforce uh, by getting rid of per piece rate. And he was also a strong advocate of worker development to train and develop each individual. And in some ways, he was quite an idealist. Uh, He wrote, uh, the public will no longer tolerate the type of employer who has his eyes only on dividends alone, who refuses to do his share of the work, and who merely cracks the whip over the heads of his workmen and attempts to drive them harder for low pay. No more will it tolerate tyranny on the part of labor, which insists one increase after another in pay and shorter hours, while at the same time it becomes less instead of more efficient. (laughs) Okay, excuse me while I fall over laughing. Taylor's strength was probably more in analysis and writing and his own PR and less with people. Remember that he was fired from Bethlehem because he couldn't get along with the other managers. And maybe it was partly because of his sort of black and white thinking that got him into trouble. Uh, Maybe people just thought he was unrealistic. Uh, He does have some pretty strong opinions. He says here, it's only through enforced standardization of methods, enforced adoption of the best implements and working conditions, and enforced cooperation that this faster work can be assured. And the duty of enforcing the adoption of standards and enforcing this cooperation rests with the management alone. He had a very definite command and control attitude toward management that was resented by workers, unions, and even other managers. He even had uh, a big fight uh, with the American Society of Mechanical Engineers when he was attempting to get them to publish some of his writings. He was the president from 1906 to 1907, and he tried to force his system into the American society, but there were a lot of members who were opposed to his approach, and there was a bunch of infighting, and there was a period of internal dissension. And so he collected together his articles into this book-length manuscript after the Brandeis argument, And he submitted it to the society to have them publish it. And they uh, kind of uh, passed the buck around, formed a committee, uh, did some machinations, and finally came back and told him that they weren't going to publish it. And so he got mad, no surprise. And then he published it himself without their approval on his own And that book is the one that has been lauded as this most important management book of the entire century and that put him on par with Darwin and Freud, uh, according to Peter Drucker. So what's his legacy? I mean, he has been terribly criticized for dehumanizing the worker. And, you know, we can tell from the stories here why. And also his rhetoric And also treating a worker as though he's just a cog in the wheel, right? So he was very much at odds with the unions at that time who held their craft in high regard and also held the knowledge of that 
craft very close to their vests. So they only doled it out through apprenticeships and through a confidential sharing of information. Communists, socialists, and even liberals have been very outspoken critics of Taylor's attitudes and approach to work and management. And I would argue that Taylorism is wrong, wrong-headed for all those reasons, but also really for better ones that reflect less poorly on him, really. And that is just that his ideas now are really obsolete. The intelligence, education, and expertise of our workers now is often on par with management. Our work has changed tremendously so that carrying around pig iron just isn't mostly what people do anymore. Management and administration, ownership and investors all make for a wildly different world than it was back uh, when he was writing and teaching. Uh, Today, people can make millions of dollars per day off the backs of their workers, while not even in the same country and maybe someday not even on the same planet. My opinion is we need to stop talking about Taylorism. If management really hasn't come up with anything new or better, then we shouldn't blame Taylor for that. I think if he were here today, he would have a completely different approach to management and work than he did back then, and I sure hope so. And I think we should too. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.